Well, if I have not met you before, my name is Mike, and uh, that was my lovely wife who was hosting our service. And we are in a series called The Minor Prophets, which would be better known historically as the Book of the Twelve, uh, because the twelve books that we call as Christians the Minor Prophets are actually this collection of writings of prophets that uh, we don't often spend in our contemporary age spending a lot of time reflecting and reading, and they can be complex. And Hannah did an incredible job last Sunday unpacking the beginning of that as an overview and also delving into uh, the prophet Amos. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that message yet, can I encourage you, um, go to our app, go to the media section and watch that presentation because it's um, really challenging, it's compelling. If you were here last week, you were probably, like me, very challenged um, by the words of the Lord spoken to us. And today, we're going to be looking at another prophet, um, the fourth of the twelfth of the twelve, which is a really interesting book because it's very different to the minor prophets that are actually in this group of twelve. And it is uh, the book of Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, we actually get a story that is very different to the way the other minor prophets are expressed. Because in most of the other minor prophets, there's these just endless declarations to both Israel or Judah or the nations around about them about their behavior and about how God is calling them back to be really, at the end of the day, truly human and to not treat one another in inhumane ways. As we heard last week in Amos, let there be a river of justice. Let there be mercy. God's not interested so much in all of our religious practices as he is in the result that actually takes place in how we treat our neighbors. And this is the overwhelming emphasis in the prophets. As a matter of fact, it's the overwhelming emphasis of the entire canon of Scripture. Now, is God against our festivals and our singing only if it doesn't mean anything and it doesn't transform us. Which is why we have to be so careful that we never get held too closely to how we worship and all the dumb arguments that have gone on throughout history about that. Rather focus on whether or not our, our worship practices are actually good enough to transform our hearts and minds so that we look like God's people. Loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and reflecting the image of God to our neighbors. That's what the best kind of worship is. That's what the scriptures tell us over and over again God is interested in. And that's when God gets very cranky through the voices of the prophets in saying, I don't care how good your band is, I don't care about all the things you're saying. If it's just lip service, I'm not interested in it. What I want to see is you love people. Jesus declared it and he summed it up. And he actually is the living expression of what it means to fulfill all of the law and the prophets in his life. Well, today I'm going to give you a quick little overview. You know, I spent, I did a real big deep dive on, on this message. And the problem when you do that is you discover so much and it can be overwhelming if you've ever tried to teach something or do a lecture or, or, or preach a sermon or something like that. But the hardest thing in the world, it's like writing an essay when you've done all this research and you've got 20,000 words, which would be great. 
If the thesis required 20,000 words, but then the lecturer says you've got 3,000 words and you're trying to work out, how am I going to boil everything I've learned into this? And this is always the challenge, and in particular a challenge with me. But here's what I want to begin with today. Jonah is told to go and ask or to go and present himself to the Ninevites who are in a city part of Assyria under the Assyrian Empire and call them to repent. And he doesn't want to do it. So he runs away in the opposite direction. Now, I want to read a scripture to you for a moment. It's not going to come up on the screen because I accidentally forgot to add it into the slides. But let me read it to you. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. And I want you to pay attention in particular to one word when I pause and stop and hold on to that because I'm going to come back to this later in the message. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3 says, But Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction direction to get away from the Lord or or another way of understanding that is what the Lord was asking him to do he went down to the port of can we say this all together Joppa say that word with me the port of Joppa and remember that word because I'm going to come back to it later where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish he bought a ticket and he went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now, this story is the story over about a page and a half in your Bible, or the typical Bible that we have. I don't know how it works out on your digital Bible that you may have, but it's really small. And you can read it in a few minutes. Chapter 1 tells us the story of how Jonah runs away from this mission that he's given by God because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And to be honest, the more I get into this, the more I don't blame him. I think over the years I've been pretty judgmental of Jonah, which is quite ironic given what we're about to unpack today. In chapter 2, well, at the end, of, uh, the end part of chapter 1 ends up that he goes down to this port in Joppa. He gets on a boat and he decides he's going to go the furthest he can get, which is to Tarshish, which is he has to go across the Mediterranean Sea to get to this place in the hope that he can be the furthest away from where he's meant to be. And in the course of this, he meets these sailors on this boat and a massive storm is stirred up. And in this day and age, whenever anything would happen, it would be normal if something bad happens to ask, why are the gods doing this to us? And so the sailors are wrestling out this. Jonah's basically almost like in a depressive state and he's gone down for a big sleep. He's just trying to ignore the whole thing and get away from it. He's in a deep sleep. You know the story. The sailors are freaking out. They cast lots to try and work out whose fault is it here, which was an ancient practice of almost like rolling the dice and trying to work out, all right, whoever this piece of stick or this stone moves towards, they're the person responsible. This is going to give us direction. And in ancient times, this is so often how people got direction. Literally, just let's just see what happens because they were kind of hoping that somehow the forces would direct them. So then it falls to Jonah and they go down and they wake him up and go, who on earth are you? And Funny enough, he stands up and he tells them that he's a, he's a prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh. 
And uh, he kind of identifies himself in that way, even though, interestingly, he's actually trying to run away from that identity. And so they're like, well, what are we going to do? You've basically brought this storm upon us because of your rebellion against your God. And he basically says, look, you should just throw me overboard. Which, there's all these different interpretations about what that's all about. Is that him trying to say, that's it, I want this over? Is that him taking full responsibility and trying to save them? Like, what's going on here? But anyway, they throw him over and they're freaking out. They end up repenting. These are pagans in the story. They're not um, fellow um, Israelites. They end up turning to God while Jonah's trying to run away from this God that he says he's actually connected to, supposed to be representing. And then we have the story of him going down into the depths of the ocean. Now, if you got the VeggieTales story version of this growing up, uh, which is actually not too bad. I went back and had a bit of a watch of it, and it was not as bad as I thought it probably was in my mind. Um, but if you got the Sunday school version or the felt board version, how good are felt boards? I feel like they're coming back. If we got a big enough one, I would use it in teaching here because they're, they're kind of cool. But I thought they were a bit daggy when I was a kid, um, once I got a bit older. When I was young, I used to love playing with them and, you know, making up my own Bible stories out of all the little felt characters. But in this um, story, we have the simple story, and this is how I understood it, and I don't know if you understood it like this, but the main story was Jonah was called by God to go to the Ninevites and to, to call them to turn to God. He didn't want to do that. He ran away from God. He ends up being thrown, tossed off the boat into the water. And there's two different versions of how often Sunday school understanding of this kicks in. It's a fish comes along and swallows him up because he's a bad guy. Or it's a fish comes along as an act of deliverance to save him from drowning in the waters. And I've been asking different people, which version of this did you pick up? Now, I picked up the version as a kid, which was because he was bad and he wasn't doing God's things, he ended up having to go into a fish. Um, some other, someone else that I chatted to said, no, 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 the fish came to rescue him. That's what I heard. And I'm like, okay. And then the story kind of ends in my childhood with he gets vomited out of the fish onto the sea and he's like, phew, God's had mercy on me. And he goes and he does the job and he preaches and that's kind of the end of the story. Maybe you got a part of the story of they turn to God and it's, it's a nice big happy ending to the story. But there's a whole section, in fact, the main part of the story that was missed for me growing up. And that's what we're going to unpack for a few minutes today. Chapter 2 is actually a poem that kind of unpacks the experience that we just heard that Marley just read so beautifully for us this morning. That unpacks the experience of Jonah going into the depths of the ocean. Basically journeying towards death. And his experience through this, this poem of all the different emotions that take place when you find yourself tangled up in the mess of life, of faith, of trying to flee God. And the moment where this fish comes along and swallows him up. In ancient writings, they didn't even know really of it as a fish. They would have referred to it as a sea creature because they didn't have the kind of understanding that we have these days about what fish are and what whales are. We've kind of turned it into the whale, Jonah and the whale. But whatever it was that they understood, something came along. Jonah finds himself in the belly of this sea creature. 
And there he is as the poem unpacks for us for three days and three nights. And he goes through a process of moving from stubbornness to humble surrender, calling on the mercy of God to rescue him from his situation. But not so much, it's a little bit reluctant as far as still wanting to go to the Ninevites and fulfill his mission. It's a little bit of a, you know, when your kids come to you, and I know none of our youth in here have ever done this to their parents, but they go, yeah, I'm sorry, all right? And you're like, as a parent, what do we all say? Really? Sorry, are you? And uh, my daughter's never done that. Um, But this can happen. And so then in chapter 3, we actually have the account where Jonah ends up going to the city of Nineveh. He walks in there. He wanders around. It's a pretty big city for its time. And he declares a five-word sermon. And everyone in here is going, oh, amen to that. Why don't you do that? Because look at the results. Now, in the text that we have, it's more than five words. But in Hebrew, he only declares five words, which we'll get to in a few minutes. What happens is the people in Nineveh actually respond to his words. And the writer tells us that the king and all the people put sackcloth on. And they begin to repent and come out into the streets and demonstrate demonstrate a desire to want to turn away from their wickedness and repent before God. And not only the people do it, the animals do it too. The cows do it. It, It's like kind of crazy. I've never seen animals repent. Um, There's a couple of times I've wondered if my dog has been repenting. Um, Because one morning recently, I walked into my son's room in the dark as he was calling out. And as I stood on the carpet at the beginning of his room, I stood on dog vomit. And I was like, Gus. And he came running up to me because I went, Gus. And, he, and I looked down and I, I sort of wonder if he was a little repentant at that moment. But anyway, in this story, we have the cows and the animals. They're, they're repenting too. It's pretty cool. And then what happens in chapter 4, and this is the key part of the story, Jonah is super cranky about this. And that's an understatement. He's angry. And then he has it out with God around why God forgives the people of Nineveh. So I want to take a few minutes to kind of unpack this a little bit for us today and and dive into some of the really interesting things about this book. So who is Jonah? Jonah, interestingly, was a prophet from around about the 8th century. We read about him in 2 Kings chapter 14 because he... He kind of buddies up with Jeroboam II, who's a king in Israel, who the scriptures tell us was an evil king. As a matter of fact, he was one of the the most evil kings. He was leading Israel in the most horrendous of ways. And yet, and this is the complexity, as Hannah unpacked last week, of the prophets that we read about. They're kind of not exactly like you think they might be from our current understanding. They're conflicted. They're human too. And they have a tendency, though they have the title of prophet, to actually operate in ways that aren't always necessarily exactly according to the heartbeat of God. So we read in uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, this is pretty much the only account we have of the historical Jonah, that he he declares good things are going to happen to this evil king and his empire, and that they're going to take extra land, and they end up doing it. Interestingly enough, 
We heard last week about the prophet Amos. The prophet Amos has a counter prophecy to the same king of Jeroboam too. And he tells him in chapter 2 of Amos and also in chapter 6, that because of your wickedness and your evil, you will not conquer and you will end up in destruction. That God will judge you for your evil practices. And about 15 years later, that's exactly what happens when the Assyrians rise up and they take over the 10 tribes of Israel and they basically take them into exile, their own, and absorb them into their empire. And that's pretty much like the last days of Israel as we know it in that particular setting. And so you've got this dynamic at place between what on earth is Jonah doing? Who is this guy? But then we come to the actual book of Jonah that's amongst these 12 minor prophets, and it's really different because this book is telling us a story that actually wants us to reflect on its writings in such a way that when you put it amongst all the other prophets, and these other prophets, they say so many intense things. Like that, If you just decide, I'm just going to read through the 12 prophets, minor prophets this week, I'm telling you, as Hannah said last week, you're going to be going, oh, gosh, it's jolting. Their language and the metaphors and the way they speak about people and the nations and Israel and Judah is like, oh, gosh, is this how God is? And it's complex. But amongst all these declarations of judgment, we have the book of Jonah, which almost has this like counter-narrative going on that forces us to go, hang on a second, we can't just read or hear any one of these prophets in isolation. We have to hear all of the counsel of God together. And we have to understand the tensions at place that if you just emphasize one aspect of one of the minor prophets without hearing the story of Jonah, you may end up with a wrong idea about who this God is. Very often when we read these prophets, sometimes the story's message and meaning can get lost in the distraction of trying to prove a more modernist, literal reading of the text that actually kind of undermines the power and the beauty and the just in-your-face challenge of what this text is all about. And the challenge for us is to read and listen through ancient eyes and reflect on the message and then what that might even mean in our own context. This book was probably written few hundred years after the lifetime of where Jonah the prophet sat in the 8th century. This book was probably written in the post-exile period after Babylon had conquered Judah in the south. You remember there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south and they split as a nation and you got these 10 tribes that get taken over by the Assyrians in the north and then the Babylonian empire rises up and ends up coming in and taking all the people or a whole bunch of the people from Judah in the south off to Babylon. And that's when we get the story of like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and that whole thing. And the story of Nezra and Nehemiah. And so um, when they then begin to come back, as the Persian Empire starts to kind of rise up and they are sent back, it's in this time period that we get this story that someone has written down. Now let me just say straight up front, we are not going to enter into any kind of battle about whether or not we're supposed to take the book 
of Jonah as a literal historical story or as a metaphorical story with a powerful meaning? Let me just say straight up front, it doesn't matter. Except for when it matters. And this is when it matters. It matters when you try and take an ancient text like the book of Jonah and you try to use it to make the case that God is real and that everything that we read about in the Bible actually happened. And we get caught up in dumb arguments about whether or not a prophet called Jonah could be in a whale for three days and three nights and survive. Because your non-spiritual or non you know, or atheist friends say, this is why I can't believe your nonsense because you believe that a guy was in a... And you're like, well, he was. And then you start looking up and finding some blog site that's got some case for why you think that it's... And then you get into this debate. And we end up in this really ridiculous debate and actually miss the whole point and meaning of the story. And I think a little bit like C.S. Lewis's book, um, just had a mind blank on, on it, uh, about... The, the senior demon, it's, it's a story, by the way, it's not real. Screw tape letters, thank you very much. The screw tape letters, where the senior demon comes along and is trying to distract the, the, key, the key character with all these things. And he's coming up with a junior demon, all these strategies. And one of the strategies is to distract the Christians from the main thing. And sometimes I think this is exactly what's happening when we're in this battle. Really challenging. But a few interesting things about the book that are worth pointing out for us is that the book is full of satire. It's almost like a parable. It's full of hyperbole. I'll give you an example. The word gadol in Hebrew, and anyone who knows Hebrew really well, and here's my Hebrew um, expressions of how you say it. Don't judge me for that, which is the point of the story, by the way. Um, the, the word means, uh, or is interpreted as big or great. It's used 14 times to describe almost every key part of the story. Okay, like a great city, a great wind, a great storm, a great fish, a great joy. It's just like used over and over. And there's this kind of this rhythm and this rhyme to how it's expressed. We have in the book of Jonah what's called personification. Remember that from English? When you make human-like characteristics or you give human-like characteristics to something that's non-human. Like in Hebrew, and we get a slightly different version in our English translations. In chapter 1, we have it says, the ship threatened to break up. I don't know, the last time you were on a boat and the boat spoke to you and says, right, that's it. You keep bouncing around on top, I'm going to break this thing up. But that's what we have in the Hebrew expression of this here. And so you go, oh, this is interesting. And then really interesting and kind of bizarre, we have the story of the great sea creature, the fish, the whale, whatever you want to call it, that in chapter 1 is a male. Some of you go, oh, well, why couldn't it be a female in the story? Oh, hold on. Hold on. Why did it have to be a male? Why couldn't it be a female? It becomes a female. You're going, what? Let me explain this to you for a moment. In chapter 1, the word dag, which when I first read this, it says dag. I'm like, you're all like going, yeah, dag. That's the right word for male in Hebrew, a dag. It's more pronounced dog or dog. What's up, dog? (laughs) 
This is, the, this is the word that's used to describe this sea creature, this fish or this whale. And then in chapter 2 in the poem, the fish has a different name expression. The word used is dogar, which is the female fish. When it's talking about the moment when Jonah is in the belly of this being. And then when it's spat out, it's male again. Now, this is why I'm just saying, if you want to get into the literal historical battle of trying to prove this really all happened as it is in the book, you're going to have a battle. It's going to be challenging. Because the way this book is structured, and this is not to say, could it have happened? Of course it could happen. Look, the universe came into being. Jesus rose from the dead. I have no problem thinking it could happen. I just don't know if it's the point. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so um, we, we see this as another example of that. As you read through and you listen through ancient eyes, you'll end up discovering a whole bunch of things about this passage and about this book. In chapter 4, interestingly enough, we actually have the account of Jonah actually having it out with God, for God calling the people of Nineveh to repentance and them actually changing their hearts and their minds. And look at how chapter 4 is constructed. Chapter 4 is constructed in this way. We have a look at this on the screen. There are 47 words used in the Hebrew. So if you try and add this up in your English, it won't actually match up exactly the same. But in the Hebrew, there are 47 words used. Jonah in chapter 4, gets 39 words at the beginning. And then Yahweh responds with three words. Yahweh is the Hebrew uh, name, the, the personal name for God. Then Jonah gets three words. And then Yahweh gets five words. It's almost like a debate got set up here. And then Jonah gets five words back. And then look who gets the last word. Yahweh also gets 39 words. And that is how the end of the book of Jonah ends. It's a fascinating thing. And so I think with some of these insights, it's important for us to reflect on the fact that this book is trying to tell us something deep, get us to reflect, get us to think in ways that perhaps we wouldn't normally be thinking about it. Interestingly, we read in this book that Assyria or Nineveh in this particular story repent. But if you go back to the minor prophets, one of the minor prophets, his name is Nahum, he actually prophesies down the track that Assyria has actually returned to its evil ways and continued, and he prophesies its destruction, which is exactly what ends up happening in the end. So we get this piece of the story that's trying to tell us something, but you go to the prophet Nahum and then you're going to realize, far out, they repented... And then later down the track, they return to their evil ways and they actually really are judged by God, like their nation is destroyed, as Nahum prophesies. And this is, again, the complexity of all that is going on here. I want to suggest that there's some fascinating things that's going on in this passage. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually makes reference to Jonah. The people that he's debating with and discussing and challenging them, they come to him and they've seen him do miracles. 
And interestingly, they say to him, because they're associating him with demonic activity. And so he's just basically saying, well, look at the fruit. And then they say, well, Jesus, can you just give us a sign? And he's pretty strong in his response back. He's like, man, it's a foolish generation that wants a sign. But he says that the sign that they're after is the sign of Jonah. That is the only sign that he's going to give. This is him making reference to associating himself and his being the Messiah with a core part of the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. Because everything that Jesus is doing and Jesus is about is about summing up in his life the unfolding story that's been taking place for Israel and, th- and that people have grown up listening and hearing about. And he identifies himself with Jonah and this story. Because this is about an Israelite who suffers, who goes into the depths, which is what chapter 2 of Jonah tells us, the depths of the ocean. He's, in, he's basically in Sheol, which is death. It's the place of the dead. It's the end of his life as he knows it. And then in mercy, there's this sea creature that comes along and he ends up being in the belly of this being for three days and three nights. And Jesus associates this with his own suffering. An Israelite, who is Jesus, who suffers, but who is recreated or resurrected on the third day so that the nations can be forgiven, which is what God was trying to do through the story of Jonah. He's trying to say, Jonah, in your death, I will bring about resurrection and I will send you on your purpose so that the nation of Nineveh will repent. But Jesus says, but he's far greater than Nineveh far greater than Solomon, he says in Matthew chapter 12 that this sign is the sign that his life is about. That through his death and through his resurrection, God is going to bring about the repentance and the forgiveness of the nations. In Jonah, resurrection from the belly of the fish Nina ends up being saved. But in Christ Jesus, death and resurrection, all the world is saved. But you've got to understand, in the story of Jonah, it's complex. And it's complex because, let's go to Jonah chapter 4 for a moment and unpack some of the verses of why this story is going to create conflict for us. In Jonah chapter 4, we actually have here... Hopefully we'll be able to find, can you see Jonah 4 on the slides? Here we go, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. It says here, Lord, this is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishment. Now, where does he quote from here? He's actually quoting from the book of Exodus. We'll have a look at the example of this for a moment. In the book of Exodus, this is exactly where Jonah is quoting. He says, The Lord, the Lord of the Lord of God, sorry, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving 
iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet by no means, and this is the part he doesn't actually make reference to, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The writer of the prophet or the book of Jonah has Jonah in this story. Conflicted because who are these Assyrians? Who are these Ninevites? Well, historically we know that the Assyrians are a group of people who did horrendous things in the way that they governed and they led their nation. They would actually, and hopefully we've got old enough people for the MA version of this in the room, they would actually bury people in the ground just with their heads out of the ground. And they would die slowly in that way. These are people that would actually skin off their enemies, take the skin off their enemies and leave them to die. This is the nation, the group that actually created and came up with the idea of crucifixion. And so you can have a little bit of mercy on Jonah when he doesn't obey God's will, when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to give them this message. And this is the five word message that he gives them in Jonah chapter three. In 40 days, this city is going to be overthrown or overturned. Now, if you have a look at this for a moment, there's a really interesting word there, overthrown, that we need to highlight for a moment. Because this word overthrown in Hebrew has two different expressions of the exact same word. When Jonah goes into the city and says the five words before the city of Nineveh, they would have heard him saying, in a pretty short period of time, our city is going to be overthrown, overturned. We are like going to be destroyed. And as a result, that's what they heard. They actually turned and repented. But interesting, this word, this exact same word, is the word that can actually be also translated as changed or transformed. We might understand it better. And interestingly enough, this word, this Hebrew word, hafak, means overthrown or changed. It can play out in two different ways. And examples all the way through the scripture show examples when something was overthrown and gotten away with, and examples when someone was changed or transformed using the exact same word. Interestingly, the prophet goes to declare these words, and what happens? Exactly what he says. He's afraid that they're going to be transformed and changed, which is what happens. The people are afraid that they're going to be overturned and cast away, so they repent, including the cows and the animals. Now, this is so interesting to understand because when you get to chapter 4, you actually understand the battle that's going on between Jonah and God. He's having it out with God. I knew that you'd be merciful because this is what we've learned through the prophet Moses. This is what we've been brought up, that God's love is, great, is just full of unfailing mercy and love. And this is what's so challenging for us. I heard a story Recently, about a, uh, I don't know if some of you have heard of a, a guy by the name of Brian Zand, but he, uh, he quotes a story, just lost my, my notes here, of a friend of his who says, never bet against the mercy of God. 
It's bad odds. And when I heard that, I was like, that's so true. Because this is what this story tells us. At the end of Jonah chapter 4, God says these final words to him. He challenges him. He says, is it all right for you to be angry that I had mercy on the people of Nineveh? That's how the end of the book ends. There's no response. There's no answer. But earlier on, owners, uh, Jonah is upset and angry about the fact that he's sitting, he, he goes up onto a hill to watch the city of Nineveh in the hope that it actually won't happen, that it won't change, that they actually will be destroyed and overturned. And while he's there, he sits under this little shelter and then a plant grows up and then the plant gets eaten by a worm and destroyed and he's upset because he has more mercy and care for the plant that's destroyed than he does the people. And God comes back to him in the conversation and says, you cared more about this plant that was destroyed, but is it wrong that I care for the 120,000 people and the animals, God says, of this city? And so then we're left with, to reflect on, what does this mean? Who are we in the story? And there's a few reflections that I would like us to think about. And these are some of them. First of all, let's be slow to judge Jonah because Jonah wants to see justice. Can you imagine if you've gone through Nazi Germany, you've gone through a prison camp and God tells you, go to the Nazis and tell them to repent? You're like, no. I want them to get their justice. I actually want them to suffer for all that they've done. It would be understandable to feel like that. I think this story invites us to see and to reflect on the Jonah in each of us. That part of us that's made up our own idea about how God is and how God's mercy and justice should flow. And very often we have good ideas about, well, this is what God's mercy looks like, especially when it relates to me. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you, Lord. These guys over here, sinners, doing injustice, doing bad, God, issue justice on them. But on me, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so we make up the rules by which the God of Israel should issue his mercy and justice. But let's remember God's restorative justice in Jonah's life and the provision of a fish. Even with Jonah, God provides, restores, redeems, and fulfills his purpose in his life. But God is also committed to doing the same thing for the nations, for those who do evil. And so I think we need to reflect on our, ourselves, on who are our enemies, and ask ourselves, how does God feel about our enemies, and what's his goal for them? How do we manage the tension of justice and mercy, and what does that look like? And I believe Scripture increasingly points us to this idea that we see in Christ and the gospel, and that is the vision of restorative justice. That ultimately God is about the restoration of all things and all people. And that even when he issues his judgment and his justice, it is for the transformation rather than the retribution of those who have sinned and have done evil. And how might we reflect on this book and be left with that final question at the end of Jonah chapter 4 on what it means for us to reflect on what God is inviting us to do. The story of Jonah is the story of Israel. And it's the story of each of us. Who is God calling us to be merciful towards? And will we trust that God is the God of justice and mercy? 
And that the mercy we cry for ourselves, he may just want to pour out on those that we don't believe are worthy of that. I don't know if some of you have heard or saw the story of Gordon Wilson, who was with his family in the town of Anexkillen in Ireland when the conflict between the IRA was taking place. And while he was there, he was there with his family. And on this particular day when a festival was going to be taking place, a special day for them, the IRA had sent people in to plant bombs in different buildings around the town square. And during the Remembrance Day ceremony, those bombs went off. And he was there with his daughter. And what ended up happening was buildings collapsed and one came down on both him and his daughter. And while he was there, they were both conscious and they were trapped. They ended up being rescued after they were talking. His daughter went unconscious and sometime later she passed away in the hospital. Two days later, he came through and became consciously aware and the BBC came to do an interview with him as they did with other survivors. And in the interview, and you can Google this, you can even watch the video of this in the 1980s, this caught the attention of the entire world because of what he said. William Urry, who tells the story, captures it and says, no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said to the interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification over the bombers. And speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and she gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. And those were her last exact words to me. And those were the last words that I ever heard her say. And he said to the astonishment of his listeners, Wilson goes on and says, but I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to me. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this that God will forgive them. This actually had a profound impact on actually those who were in the IRA and in how they heard those words and how convicted they were of his attitude towards them, which began the process of a restoration my challenge to every single one of us here today is this. May the book of Jonah remind us to never bet against the mercy of God. To ask ourselves this question, do we desire retribution or restoration? Do we want to see people overturned or do we want to see people changed and transformed? You know the amazing thing as I finish, and I want to invite the musicians to come forwards. Do you know in the book of Acts in the New Testament, there's a fascinating thing that takes place, which I learned this week. In Acts chapter 10, Simon, who's called Peter, one of the great apostles, do you know what Simon was referred to and who his father was? Does anyone know Simon's name? Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah, have a look at what this passage says, what this verse says here. It says in Acts chapter 10, now send, me, now send men to Joppa. Remember we said Joppa in Jonah chapter 1? Send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. 
He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And this is the story in chapter 10 of where Simon, we now know as Peter, has a vision from God. He's, he's the son of Jonah. I find this fascinating. He finds himself in the port side city of Joppa, which is the place where Jonah in the story heads to to get on the boat to head off to Tarshish. Amazingly, in this account in chapter 10, this is where Jonah has a vision, where God in this vision shows him that he can eat anything and that he should not judge what God calls clean to be unclean. And through this vision, he's compelled to go to Caesarea to preach to the Gentiles that Jews shouldn't be mixing with and associating with and invite them to experience the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent and be transformed in the way of Jesus, and they don't need to become Jews in the process. He has this massive revelation in Joppa, the very place where Jonah, in his story, goes off. Now, we don't know what went through Simon's mind, but did he think it of at any point, whoa, 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 I better not run away from the word of the Lord here. But may I remember as I've been shown in the vision that God has mercy and compassion and love for all people. And so what does he do? He goes to them and all these people come to faith in Jesus because he responds to the word of the Lord and he goes to them. Don't you just love how all of this kind of plays together in the scripture? The symbolism, the power, the beauty, that God is a God of restoration and he's continually opening our minds and hearts to see his heartbeat and his vision for all of humanity. So would you stand with me this morning? And I would love us to pray. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. And may we remember God's provision of a fish for Jonah, his rebirth in that female fish, that rebirthing and transformation that began his resurrection towards fulfilling God's purposes. And may we wrestle with chapter four and the questions of mercy and justice. May we be slow to judge Jonah. May we be quick to reflect on our own behaviors and mindsets. And may we like Simon, Peter, Respond when we find ourselves in the port of Joppa and say yes to the word of the Lord. Send me to whoever it is that you want me to go. And may I declare the love, the mercy of God to everyone that I meet. And remember this, never ever bet against the mercy of God. It is bad odds. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you that your mercy and your love is so much greater than how we often want to express mercy and grace. Ours is so often conditional. Yours is unconditional. Lord, may we learn from this story. May we wrestle with it in our hearts and minds. But may we do so in your presence. And may we live declaring your mercy for all humanity, for all of time. In Jesus' name, let's sing.